Welcome to the Financial Residency Podcast, where we are devoted exclusively to the financial well-being of physicians and helping you achieve the financial freedom you deserve. This is your financial residency without the long hours and sleepless nights. Let's welcome your host and primary care physician for your finances, Ryan Inman. What's up, everyone? Welcome back. Super excited to have you guys here. And thank you so much for tuning in. Excited to do part two of our show with Travis Hornsby, the student loan expert from studentloanplanner.com. Last episode, we talked all about the three biggest mistakes that we see physicians make with their student debt. Well, today we're taking on seven of the listener questions and answering them. So there's a lot of content here. So let's jump right in. And now it's time for the curbside consult. Travis, today's first question is from Stephanie. Hi, this is Stephanie. I'm a pediatrician in Kansas. I have a lot of student loans. Um, I just got out of residency. I'm behind in making contribution for retirement, but I really want to pay off my student loans. So how do I, how do I go about balancing paying off those loans versus saving for retirement, which should be a priority? Thanks. Stephanie, uh, great question. Thank you for calling it in. Basically, if you want to pay off your debt, it sounds like you really aren't comfortable with the student debts. You've mentioned how you have a lot of it that you really want to pay it off. And you're trying to balance between paying off debt and investing. It's one of those things that, you know, if you're going for PSLF, this change your investment strategy. If you're not and you're refinancing, again, it could change how you're you're looking at things. If you're in an area that like First Republic services that your loan is at sub 3%, that changes the way that you can turn around and invest versus paying off debt. Um, if you had horrible credit for some reason and uh, your you know interest rates are five five and a half percent, maybe it is better for you to prioritize paying off your debt. You know it's tough to give real accurate advice, um, so I can really only speak in generalities. But there are ways to to do both. I definitely think that almost in every circumstance that you should be pushing money towards your tax advantaged accounts. This would be your 401k or 403b at work that you can put up to 18,500 into. The other is the IRA. If you have a traditional IRA open, you can put 5,500 in and assuming that you're out of residency and you're now making over the contribution cap, then you should be doing a backdoor Roth, which I've talked about on previous episodes. So go back and check out those. I'll link them in the show notes. Basically, that's kind of where you're at. There's not much that you can go further into this question. I'm curious, Travis, do you have kind of more to add to this other than some generalities that I just gave? Sure. It sounds like Stephanie is really just dealing with some, some like the like the psychological anguish of debt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she just finished up residency. She's like an attending now. Like she's making the first real salary of her life. Like she wants to do all, everything at once, right? She probably wants to Maybe she's thinking about a house. Maybe she's wants to pay off the student debt quickly, but she also wants to make sure she saves for retirement. Like she heard that there was these things like taxable brokerage accounts that you can open and, you know, put money with your advisor, like do robo advisors or Vanguard or something. There's like all these choices, right? You know, it's kind of like analysis paralysis. So I would encourage any new attending because you're making enough money to do this to maximize your 401k or your 403b. So that's 18,500, like at least do that. And then I personally would say if Stephanie's working at a private employer or she's confident that she's not going to 
get PSLF, like that's not in the picture, then I really like people just to aggressively refinance and pay it off. Mm-hmm. You know, because student debt's not mortgage debt. There's no tax benefits really. And to get some of those low interest rates that would require you to keep the debt around or to get a low enough interest rate, you have to do like a five-year refinancing to get a low enough interest rate to maybe justify keeping the debt around is what I was trying to say. And so I think that, you know, it just makes sense to just try to get a really aggressive refinancing going, maybe like start off with a 10-year just to, you know, have a payment, make sure you know you can make it. And then maybe in a year from now, maybe refinance it again to a five-year and then just try to try to crush it and try to get rid of it. So I think you should be able to do both of those because for most people, the five-year payment would be like anywhere from 4000 to 6000 a month. And then maxing your your retirement would probably cost you about $1,000 a month in take-home pay. Unless you're like primary care, that should be pretty doable as a new attending. If not, then you know maybe you do a seven-year and do the uh, max 403B or 401K. So I want people to do both. If you have to choose between one or the other, then certainly get your match. So make sure you get your match in your retirement first. And then if refinancing is definitely the right thing to do, then I would say go ahead and just get it done. Pick the right term for you and lock in a a decent interest rate at today's interest rates. Just start trying to pay it back. If you had a super low interest rate, like maybe it would be a legitimate discussion. Hey, do you intentionally pay this back slowly and do you invest instead i just think that most people for most people like we know so much of investing is psychological right Mm -hmm. ryan and so i just think that people feel so good when they pay down their student debt it's like you actually can take a lot of risk in your investment portfolio better when you when you get aggressive like that so i would say you know prioritize uh, the student debt for everything except for at least getting the the match yeah and i want to add a few more little points here is one is you notice how Travis didn't say longer than 10 years. A common thing that I either get an email from a listener or even clients asking me is, you know, should I take out a 15-year thing and then just maybe add extra payments here and there? One, your interest rate's higher. Two, at 15 years, assuming you're in your early 30s um, and you maybe you're starting a family, you almost are extinguishing your debt when your kid goes to college. And that's not ideal. So I tend to say the longest length should be 10 years. If you are just in a really high pain specialty, you do derm or something like, um, or anesthesia, like just make it a five year and, and just crank it out. If refinancing is your best option, if you are going for public service loan forgiveness, then maxing out all your tax, you know, advantaged accounts is critical. At that point, you know, maybe you're doing peds and you're making 150, it might make a difference, but if you're doing a higher paying specialty, it's not going to make uh, that much difference. You're probably going to be at the standard payment anyway, but those are just my, my two little additions into that question. So let's jump into uh, the next question. Yes, I was wondering what the risks and the benefits were for taking advantage of the loan forgiveness that the government provides for working in underserved areas for doctors. So Rob, great question. I'm going to let Travis uh, take this one first. I get this one because it's uh, really a loaded question, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, so, uh, so risk risk benefits for for loan forgiveness. Gosh, this is such a common question. It really uh, is. I, let's assume that Rob and I are going to Vegas. Okay, that's you know I know close to your heart, Ryan. So, Come visit so me. We'll say, yeah. So we'll we'll say we're going to Vegas. We're going to a what is it? The Golden Knights, the NHL team up there. Yes, sir. Uh, so we go there and then we go to one of the big casinos and we're gonna sit down and we're gonna play. Uh, you know, a game of uh, roulette and the two choices instead of uh, black or red 
are getting PSLF or the interest savings you got from refinancing your loans. Those are the two payouts, right? Mm-hmm. So the max payout that we're going to get from refinancing uh, our student loans, it's probably going to be anywhere from like twenty to 50000 bucks. I'm just kind of throwing some random numbers out there, sure. right? So because, you know, at the end of the day, you're not cutting it from like 7% to zero. You're cutting it from, you know, 7% to like three or four, right? So interest savings, let's say that's around that level, 20000 to 50000 So that's our, our payoff if, you know, if, if the roulette ball lands on black or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then the other option is PSLF. And so the PSLF option says that we're going to get 300000 of loans forgiven. So in this game, our two choices are get 300000 or get twenty to 50000 so then my question would be, the, those are the, the only two things that can happen, right? We can either get a bunch forgiven or not get it forgiven. And, mm-hmm. and then the best thing to do if it doesn't happen for forgiveness is, is refinancing. So those are our two choices. So then the question I have for, for, uh, for Rob would be, what is, the, what is the probability between the two choices? You know, is it a 90% chance that forgiveness is not going to happen? You know, in that case, maybe the refinancing looks kind of good. Is it a... 50-50 chance? Is it like a 10% chance that refinancing could be the best because maybe loan forgiveness is almost a certainty? So what I like to do is I like to put this back to the person that asked the question and I would say, tell me how confident you are. You know, if you had to put a massive bet on it, like what what odds would you put on PSLF being repealed? Like for people that currently have debt that like are, are on track for it now. Usually like they can't say more than 50-50 because they don't know, right? And nobody really knows for 100% certain, but but certainly 50-50 would be reasonable. So in that 50-50 world, if you have a 50-50 shot at like 300 grand or 20 to 50 grand, what 50-50 shot do you want, right? You, you want to take the one with the 300 grand payoff, right? Because then mm-hmm. we're buying the Golden Knights. <laughs> Just kidding, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not that much, but you know, so three, 300 grand is a heck of a lot better payoff. So then the question, like the second question they ask is, okay, I get that, like I get that that's the better gamble, but like if you ever watch Deal or No Deal, like people never take the 50-50 bet, right? They want the safety. <laughs> of course. And so then the second question is, well, how do I get comfortable psychologically like going for that 300k? And the answer is side accounts. So if you've got a good planner, right? Ryan, you'd like probably open up a taxable investment account for them Absolutely. and they could be putting money into that. And so what I like to tell people is instead of throwing the money at your loans where you know for certain you're not going to get a forgiveness benefit, take the money and put it into like a blended portfolio of stocks and bonds as a hedge. Because then if PSLF doesn't work out, well, then you have this like big portfolio that's hopefully been growing at some positive you know rate of return that you can pull out and then throw at your debt and then refinance it and then not be staring across the table at like a monster 400 grand you know debt amount. Mm-hmm. So the the answer to the uncertainty as with any question in life that like requires you to make a decision in the face of uncertainty is to do a smart hedging strategy like hedge your bets that's where that term comes from so go for if you're if you're eligible for PSLF the answer is almost going to be always going to be go for PSLF and then hedge your bets by putting money into a side account where you're investing so th- if he does that i don't think he has anything to worry about yeah and the the other side of this is that uh you know, in, in Travis's example, you're putting money in a taxable account and it does happen, which I think anyone in the program, I, I give it a 90% probability that things are going to continue okay for people who are currently in the program. Those who are not in the program right now, I, I don't know how that's going to look, but probably not that great. But if it does happen and you have all that money in a taxable account 
then guess what? You have a really nice nest egg that you don't have to put towards your loans that kind of helps jumpstart your your career and gives you a good financial foundation to start building wealth on. You're rich. <laughs> yeah. I mean, essentially you, you've, you've set aside enough money, um, you know, as you're going through it. So, you know, if I'm looking at the risks and benefits and, and Travis, you, you highlighted a ton of good stuff that I don't want to echo here, but I would say be realistic with the amount of debt that you have versus the amount of income that you're going to basically forego. Because if you're going to work for a 501c3, normally your salary is going to be lower than if you were in private practice. And it, let's just say like, I can look at like peds because I deal with that with my wife. You know, maybe you're not talking a, a ton of money, 20, 30, 40,000 bucks, maybe. Right. But if you're in, you know, another high paying specialty, that's hundred, hundred and twenty five, hundred and fifty thousand $150,000 difference every year. And your total loan balance is 200,000 or 200, 300,000. Like it might not make sense to forego all that extra income to stay in a program when, you know, early on, um, you know, that you would outweigh just in terms of raw salary coming in that, uh, it it might not make sense. So, you know, this advice that, uh, you know, Travis and I are kind of giving is again, general in nature and, and very specific to everyone's situation. But, you know, I'd say it really needs to go down to, from even just a very high level, look at what the salaries that you would make private versus other. And then, you know, compare that to the amount of debt that you have. So let's jump into our next question. Hey, Ryan, how are you, buddy? This is Curtis from DMD. Question for you. Our student loans started in one place. Since then, they have been sold or moved around by the loan company. We now pay three different companies on a monthly basis uh, for our student loan debt. So why is that? Why do companies sell parts of the loan instead of keeping them in one place? And also, how is it that they can do that without alerting us? They obviously let us know after the fact, but it's just interesting that we can start with one company and then end up paying three different companies a short time later. Thanks. Once again, this is Curtis Webster from Dad's Married to Doctors Group. All right, Curtis. I love posting your questions, man. So for those of you that don't know, Curtis heads up the Dad's Married to Doctors Group. He was on last week's show and I'm putting him on again just because Curtis has some really great questions. And it's better to answer them here than for me just to keep answering them through email for him. So Curtis, excited to play your question here. You know, the servicers don't actually necessarily sometimes own the loans. And if you, if I want to relate it back to maybe home loans, because this is more common for people, is you might make your loan through, uh, let's say, B of A. That loan that goes to B of A, they might be the servicer or they might hire out another company to do the servicing for them. If B of A packages your loan and sells them off with other loans to someone else that just that, that is purchasing those loans for that basically income stream, they could remain the servicer or you could end up changing servicers. Your question wasn't 100% clear as to are you making three separate payments to three separate servicers now or not? I highly doubt it, but it could be. But basically inside of the giant loan documents that that you signed or your wife signed, they did tell you like, we can basically do whatever the heck we want. And we don't have to tell you until after the fact, when we just tell you who to send a payment to. That's unfortunate that you're now at three companies versus one. That is more than I've heard most people. Sometimes it gets sold to one company and they all go together. I really haven't heard of three separate companies owning, 
your student debt before. Uh, so that that is interesting. But the servicer, I would think, should remain consistent. If not, maybe you changed one servicer. But it's very common. And they do tell you inside of the giant loan documents that you guys signed uh, very early on where you probably weren't reading everything. So Travis, do you have anything to, to kind of add to this one? Yeah, dude, I've seen like five or six different companies people are paying. So <laughs> really, like in actually paying oh, the five or six, or or like oh yeah, or a oh, servicer. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, like five or six different servicers or five or six different companies are writing the paychecks too. What generally really? happens? Yeah, what generally happens is like you go to undergrad, right? And undergrad, your undergrad institution like made a sweetheart deal with Sally May. And like Sally Mae has got exclusive rights for University of, you know, fill in the blank, uh, you know, whatever, Nebraska or something. And so then you go to medical school, but you go to, you know, Ohio State. And then the two universities have two different contracts with different loan servicing companies. So maybe your undergrad loans like are Sally Mae and then your med school loans are uh, through Nelnet, let's say. And then let's say that there was a master's degree somewhere in there. And maybe that school had a different contract with like yet someone else. And let's also assume that while you were like applying for residencies, like you took out some like residency loans through private banks, that person in that scenario could easily have like four different loan servicers. And then what happened uh, with Sally May is like they kind of decided to do a rebrand and call themselves Navient yeah. because they had a lot of bad, uh, <laughs> bad feelings towards them so that, you know, let's just pick a new, new name. <laughs> Great. And, and still so, bad feelings. Cause you still keep screwing stuff up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then like maybe this person like transfers some loans to Fed loan because they're going for PSLF and it gets even messier. Right. Yeah. So what I think Curtis is dealing with is just the natural problem with loan servicing in America, which is it's very disorganized. Like, you know, nobody has one, loan servicer and and they never think about loans in terms of the individual that's always like whatever's convenient for the institution that they're attending. So there are ways that you can move loans to a single servicer. The easiest way is like if you're graduating from med school, then you can consolidate if all the loans are federal and like at least have all the federal loans at the servicer of your choosing. You can actually pick what loan servicer you want to have it at. So for people that are going for PSLF, I tell them you have to choose FedLoan. You don't have a choice. So get it all only at FedLoan. And then say, for example, that you're not ready to refinance yet. Maybe you're like you're in, in residency and you have both physicians and you're going to refinance eventually, but you don't really feel comfortable yet, right? What you can do is maybe like consolidate and move the loans where they're at both at the same servicer. So the, there's little tricks and, and ways that you can move federal loans to the, to one loan servicer instead of multiple. And then the easy way to get one loan servicer besides that is just obviously refinancing because then you actually move everything from however many places you want to a single company where you're paying for your loans. So there's definitely ways to mitigate some of that. And usually it's because there's random private lenders and basically what they're selling is the servicing rights. So all these different places get paid certain amount of money every year for mm -hmm. collecting the, your payments. And sometimes these companies go out of business or they make a deal to merge or they, you know, rebrand their names. And then when that happens, there's all kinds of disruptions to people. So uh, I'm sorry Curtis is experiencing that, but unfortunately it's pretty common. Yeah. And what, I guess what threw me off on Curtis' question was he said that they started all in one place. So it wasn't from undergrad and then medical school or, or master's starting all in one place. And then they're separating out the loans assuming yeah. that he didn't consolidate or his wife didn't consolidate the loans. And so individual loans are kind of getting picked off, but they all started or originated in the same place, let's say med school. That to me is where I thought that was very uncommon 
But yes, if you add in med school and undergrad and maybe a master's or whatever it is, then yes, it makes sense or private debt versus public, then you're going to have multiple payments. Absolutely. But the, um, the thing that threw me off was that they all start in one place. Let's, uh, let's move to the next question. Hi, this is Carrie. I'm an internal medicine calling from Baltimore. I'm trying to decide with my student loans whether to stay in the income-based repayment plan to go for forgiveness or whether I should privatize my loans to get a much lower interest rate. Could you talk a little bit about what factors or what I should think about when I make the decision? Thanks. So Carrie, great question. And I'm going to let uh, Travis start with this one first. Yeah. So we talked a lot about the uncertainty about PS11, how to handle it mentally, right? Mm -hmm. If Carrie is an IBR, that's probably not the right program. Like the only scenario where being an IBR would be okay would be if Carrie like had some filing taxes separately situations going on because, uh, you know, maybe her spouse has got a big income and she doesn't want to include that in her loan calculation. So the fact like, you know, if you're going to do IBR, then you probably need to be doing like either repay or pay as you earn. There's a lot of misinformation and concerns out there about the payment cap. Like repay does not have a does not have a cap on payments, so it can in theory go as like as high as high as ten percent of your income will take it. And so people get really scared about that, like just really scared. <laughs> like people mm-hmm. are just thinking, you know, oh my gosh, if I switch from IBR to repay, like there's no cap, my payment's going to be a bazillion dollars a month. You have to look at what your ten percent of your discretionary income is. And you have to compare that to the standard 10-year plan. And if your uh, repay payment is less than that standard 10-year plan, then you don't really have anything to worry about. Like people get so worried about this and they shouldn't. So I would say, depends on Carrie's situation, but almost certainly go for PSLF if she's looking at like one of the two of them. Now, the one thing that's really, to tie back to what you said earlier, Ryan, about like a physician who's thinking about, you know, do I go in private practice and make more money or do I do an academic hospital and and get PSLF the real factor in making that decision is what you want your career to look like because obviously if you went to a private practice job then you'd probably want to refinance so the real question I'd have for Carrie is you know what really gets you excited about medicine like what do you really enjoy about medicine you know do you love the idea that you're finally getting rewarded for all your hard work and you you can actually go out and earn money in accordance with how you're helping patients and how you're doing certain number of surgeries and how it's just really you're you're earning a really high wage and you deserve to make that high wage because you've suffered so much for so many years to get there. In that scenario, maybe like private practice is the place for you, maybe just refinance and get rid of the debt. If you're the kind of person that prefers academic medicine or prefers working in a hospital system, then PSLF is just as awesome benefit. Why would you leave it on the table? But you want to make the career decision first, and then you want to make the student loan decision based off of like what's best for your career. Often I see people that they love their private practice job. They would never leave. Like They think it's great. Cool. You shouldn't go to you know a not-for-profit hospital, even if you have a bunch of student debt. And then the flip side's true too. Like You should never remain at a hospital just for loan forgiveness there's not too many scenarios where that's not true. Maybe there's a couple places where like some pediatricians making the 150K, you know, should probably stay at a, a hospital and get the loan forgiveness benefit. But yeah, I mean, I really view it more as like a career decision. If Carrie's definitely going to be at the hospital, then it's pretty clear that they would do PSLF. Yeah, I think that's a great point that you're you're saying something that I echo a lot is what is your ideal life look like? You know, what what is it that you really want out of life? And I know that sounds kind of deep for this kind of question, but it's true. 
right? Don't let loans, please don't let your loans dictate what kind of job you're going to do for your whole career. Like, and I know that people switch jobs and do different things, but unless you're like, have gone through so much training that you literally have two years left and, you know, it makes sense just to go the next two years in an academic setting just to get the forgiveness, fine. But if you're four, five, six, seven years still, don't let the loan balance dictate everything you're doing. Like do something that you really love, that you want to do. Um, obviously practicing medicine in any capacity is probably going to satisfy that, but just don't let your loans take over. The other thing I want to say is, Travis, I don't know if you get this a lot or not, but when people say IBR, sometimes they don't mean IBR. Sometimes they're literally just talking that they're in an income-based repayment plan. And I don't sometimes know which plan they're talking about. So it could be IBR, repayee, payee, um, or hopefully not ICR. But I don't know, do people mix that up with you? Sometimes they just say like, oh, I'm in IBR, but really they meant like they're just in an income-based repayment plan, not actual IBR. Oh, totally. What they often have happened to them is the servicers will usually tell them enrolled in income-driven repayment. And so the word slip-up happens and they say they're an income-based repayment. Mm -hmm. And so income-driven repayment IDR for short, that's just like a broad category. That doesn't mean anything. That mm -hmm. just means you're paying your loans back based on your income. And I wish they would stop doing that because it's really not helpful. So maybe Carrie was not on IBR at all. We don't know without having her here, but the mistake happens all the time. And so I would just say like the, the best way to figure it out is, <laughs> this is going to sound really stupid, but call your loan servicing company, ask them, am I on the pay as you earn program? and not the revised pay-as-you-earn program. Make it really clear, you know, or am I on the IBR income-based repayment program? Like ask like which one of the three and then hang up, call back, get a different person and ask the same question. Yeah. Or <laughs> just say, can, it, you, can it, you transfer me to someone else so I can ask the same question again? Yeah, the duplicate exactly, information. Yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah, exactly. terrible. So just, well, but seriously, like if you get that independent, like multiple people saying you're on the same plan, then you f can feel confident about it. Yeah. Um, if you so really like want to dig in the weeds, and sometimes I, I would highly not recommend this, but if you're highly analytical and you want to go, you can go to the NSLDS website and download your text file. And yeah. while you probably don't have something that Travis and I do, which is what we've built our own Excel calculators to pull all this data and parse everything, you can still go through manually. It's, you know, probably a couple thousand lines of code, but you can go through and you can actually see like what it tells you everything. That text file is ugly as it is. It tells you literally everything that you have going on for your loans and you can go inside there and it'll actually tell you what payment plan that you're inside of. So let's, let's jump to the next question. Uh, hey, Ryan, this is Royce from Calgary, Alberta. Uh, just wondering, when it comes to student loans, uh, we've got a family of five here, three girls, ages 11, 8, and almost four. And just wondering, when it comes to student loans and paying off that debt for fixed expenses, what makes sense to allocate towards the student debt per month, as opposed to all these other expenses that we're saving for as well? putting kids through school and, and just day-to-day -day expenses and things like that. Love the podcast. Thanks in advance. Uh, I look forward to, to hearing it. Thank you. Royce, great question. I love that you're thinking about uh, your student debt in relation to everything else. I mean, it's not siloed out. So from a high level, right, and I can only talk generalities here, but from a high level, I like to say 50% of your expenses, your take-home expenses should be fixed. So, you know, for every dollar that your family's making, 50% of it is already spoken for once it hits your bank account. 
inside of that, you know, you'd think like your mortgage, your insurance premiums, I count food inside of there. Like if you went to the grocery store every day versus going out to eat, I don't count that. And of course your student debt would be inside there. I would then look at is like your variable expenses should be about 25% or less of your take-home pay. And then your savings should be 25% or more of that. I would highly try to target 25%. In part of that savings though, you could be paying down your debt if that is something that you guys are in. So we didn't have a lot of information concerning your debt, but if I can just make some assumptions, you know, you're, you're on a 10 year repayment. So let's say you've refinanced and you're trying to actively like Stephanie was doing, try to figure out if you can save versus spend and versus pay down debt. I would do some kind of combo of those, but your savings that you would be allocating to investments could also be used to pay down some of that debt. And I would try to keep in the same amounts of 50, 25 and 25. And if anything was to go lower, it'd be some of your variable expenses to maybe increase savings, which then in turn could pay down your debt. So I would look at it from a very high level. I would start, I don't like tracking a budget. Yes, I'm a financial planner who doesn't like to budget. That doesn't mean that I don't do it. That doesn't mean that I haven't done it to the detail. But I do know from a high level, I've gone through what our expenses are. I know generally what we spend and I've done it for so long and I've kept track of it so long that I know that if my credit card is under $2,500 a month, that I don't have to look at anything. I don't have to budget. I don't have to do anything because I know that if it's 2,500 or less, my savings is already done. My fixed expenses are just that they're fixed. And if my variable expenses and things that I put on that credit card is below 2,500, then I know I'm good and I don't have to go dive down deeper. And that still means that the money that I'm saving, if we did have student debt, I could be paying it off aggressively towards that. Or if we didn't, then I could be, you know, doing in other investments and things like that. So that's kind of from a high level, the way I look at budgeting with respects to paying off debt and allocating expenses otherwise. So <laughs> Travis, do you want to, you want to jump in and give a little bit of a uh, Travis advice here? Yeah, dude, 2,500 a month. Dude, I blow that in an afternoon. What are you talking about? That's, <laughs> hey, that's, that's play just, money. That's just variable expenses, man. That's not, I mean, some stuff goes onto a certain card that I have with the fixed expenses, like, you know, my utilities and things that I don't look at it. But yeah, I mean, our variable expenses are, are about that. We don't really spend that much money. Yeah. In that you know, stuff. it's so, uh, I mean, like, the thing that I would add is just uh, that I've never seen a physician family in trouble financially, like really, really stressed financially, where too much house and too much car was not in the picture. It's always those two things are the biggest obvious need to change tomorrow kind of things that, that I see whenever somebody's like really stressed and doesn't have enough to like make a ton of progress, right? Because my attitude towards like how much should be going to student debt really the question is, is, you know, should it be going to the student debt? Figure that out first. And if it should be going to the student debt because you're supposed to refinance and pay it back as quickly as possible, then like, I don't know, like I, I think I get into the psychology of this a lot, like pay it back freaking crazy fast. I'll use my own family as an example. Like we pay 6,500 a month towards our student loans. Last month I took like 10,000 and we just made a lump sum payment extra that month on the student loans. And our attitude is, you know, I sometimes have to pick up my wife after she's just got called in on a Sunday evening. We were supposed to have date night where she had to like repair somebody's uh, pelvic floor that like had a big tear or something that she had to go fix. Right. And so she looks at me like exhausted at 11 p.m. at night. She's like, 
maybe, you know, maybe I should try to be like a writer or like (laughs) go, you know, tutor for like the MCATs or something. And that's why I want her student loans gone. I want her to own her medical education so that she can do anything she wants in life and not feel pressured to make a certain income. And it's all gravy, you know? So Mm -hmm. the answer that I would say is like, first, I think the, the real question is kind of like, you know, we have all these other things we want to spend our money on. So the the first thing is like, don't live like an attending yet. Put off the house, like the physician house where you're going to raise your family, put that off, wait until the student loans are gone, then buy it. That's the first big thing. And then the second big thing is you want to look like you're a boring mid-career engineer at a you know, mid-sized big company in town with what car you're driving and not like a you know, sales executive trying to impress everybody with what car you're driving. So yes, you worked your tail off. You deserve the nice car, but you shouldn't buy it. And what you should buy instead, go on Craigslist, like look what you can find, five to $10,000 on Craigslist, clean titles only, look for cars that have, you know, been well-maintained and then take that car to your mechanic, ask him to check it out, ask him how well taken care of it was. And you can easily buy two really reliable, really solid cars within five years models, you know, for less than like 15,000 combined for two cars. And so our family, we share a car, but like, if you have to have two, like do it that way. You know, when we just started, you know, my wife became an attending for the very first time. She didn't have a ton of savings. And so we decided to like, let's just buy a busted up Honda Civic. Once we have enough money to buy something else, we will. So I bought it for 2,200 and I sold it for 2,000. And then we bought our next car for 6600 So I'm just giving you like these concrete examples to say that like control the house, control the car, and then put as much as possible towards the student loans. And maybe there's kids in the picture you have to do daycare. I get that. Like do that stuff. And whatever your like sanity things are that you have to do, do those. But everything else, like I would just support them putting towards the student debt or if they're going for a forgiveness program, then put it into retirement and all these things and just lock down that financial security that your family deserves. Yeah. And, and you know, when I'm talking with clients on, on a lot of stuff, I mean, we're putting, you know, different goals and different things into perspective. And I try to narrow people down into the concept of like, what is really important, right? And you say your sanity things. I actually like that. I think that's an interesting way of putting it. But like, what are some of the things that are really important to you? and that you want to experience out of life and that you want to do that you really shouldn't put on hold. And so I'm in a a middle camp between like the super frugal and like you live life once category, right? Of, Of type people. I actually think that there are some things that you should spend your money on. The things that are going to be different for me than are that are different for Travis that are different to all of you listening, right? If your big thing in life is to travel, And that is like the thing that makes you the most happiest thing, you know, person in the whole world. This is what you live for. You want to travel and experience and do those things. You should do those things. And that that might not mean that you go and stay at the Ritz Carlton and do these things nicely, but you still spend your money and do those things. But what is the trade-off for that? Well, the trade-off should be maybe you're buying a car like how Travis is mentioning, or maybe you rent a small home or you're buying a really, you know, small home that's not ideal that will allow you to then take the money, not only pay down your loans in a quicker fashion, but also experience life in the way you want. Cutting fixed expenses is generally the best thing you can do for your finances 
because fixed expenses, I mean, that's literally gone before, as you get it, right? As, as soon as it hits your bank account, like that dollar is all, 70% of uh, your expenses are fixed. Well, 70 cents of that dollar is already gone. You can't do anything about it. So cutting out the Starbucks does not matter at all, right? You know, if, if 70% is already gone, Starbucks isn't part of that 70%. Like it doesn't matter if you go to Starbucks two or three times a week or not. If you don't, if you have a giant mortgage, and you know you're paying for the Model X Tesla. There's not much else money to go around. So you know it's putting things into perspective. And those with kids, you're kind of in a different boat than those without. And I can speak to the those with kids. Kids are expensive. I love my kids to death. I think that they're amazing. Truth is, they're expensive. So you put them first because you can't cut back stuff for your kids if they need diapers or wipes or whatever. I mean, you, you're even if they go to school. Hopefully you live in an area where they can go to a, a school that you don't have to pay thousands of dollars a month for. But if not, and that's what you have, then that's what you have to deal with. But, you know, kind of putting everything back into perspective, what excites me is different than what excites Travis and probably what excites all of you. So I don't want you to cut out everything, but I agree, I do agree with Travis that, you know, prioritizing the debt, if you do refinance it, having a good debt repayment plan and actually sticking to it is absolutely critical to your overall financial success. So let's jump into our next question. My question is regarding student loans, being married, and whether or not you should file your tax returns jointly or individually. So let's say you're a medical student, you have a spouse who's been working for years and has 100 k in student loans, you as a medical student has 300k and you want to determine whether or not you should claim a uh, joint tax return so you you get the benefits of filing jointly or you file an individual tax return so you get that lower income uh, as a medical student your income is zero or maybe you know your wife's been working she has a, like $50,000 income you know, you're going to have low payments either way because you have a low income. But if you file individually, you're going to have pretty much zero payments for the first year of residency guaranteed. So I'm just wondering how you go about determining whether or not you should file joint separately, look at your taxes. What do you do? Do you uh, file mock taxes as a joint couple and as a separately? Or is there a better way to look at that? Thanks. Gabe, thanks so much for the question. Travis, I'm going to let you handle uh, this one first. I really like this question because it shows a really, really common mistake that a lot of physicians make. So the wife has 100000 in debt. Gabe's got 300000 You've got certain income situation going on. Do you file taxes jointly or separately? Like, How do you look at that? In 99% of cases, filing taxes separately when you both have federal student debt is a mistake. You should not file taxes separately if you both have federal student debt. I see it happen all the time. I see a lot of misunderstanding around this. People don't really understand how the calculations work, the formulas work. If you both have student debt, let me tell you what happens. 100K in debt plus 300,000 in debt is 400,000 in debt. 50,000 income plus $0 income is 50,000 income. If you file jointly, then you're going to have 400000 in debt. You're going to have 50000 in income. They're going to determine a payment that's based off of your global debt and global income on the federal system. 
and then they're going to divide it proportionally based off of you know how much debt each person has. And so there's really no good reason to file taxes separately in that situation because your payment's going to be the same or should be the same anyway. You'll just be paying tax penalties if you're filing separately. So this situation with Gabe, I think it probably should be a pretty easy answer. Mm-hmm. Now, if Gabe said, my wife has, you know, I don't know, maybe maybe the wife has um, no student debt and has an income. Everything else about this is is the same. Gabe's got 300000 of student loans. Like, okay, maybe then you think about filing separately, you know, if you're going for PSLF. What I generally find is that the only situation where PS where we're filing separately for taxes is something that is worthwhile looking into is if the person is is doing PSLF, right? So if you're doing some other strategy, whether it's uh, going for loan forgiveness uh, outside of the PSLF program, which is somewhat uncommon, or doing refinancing, you shouldn't file separately for those situations. But it's pretty obvious. So generally, when somebody's trying to figure it out, it's PSLF is is the reason. And if you both are physicians, you both have debt, don't file separately. If you're if you're listening to this and you're currently filing separately, I'm going to be honest with you and doing a consult with us is probably a very smart idea because there's lots of mistakes that are easily in the thousands of dollars that people make because they go to the accountant and the accountant can tell them how much it costs to file separately versus joint. But what the accountant cannot answer is how that relates to the student debt. Mm-hmm. And then the person makes the decision on their own and then they make mistakes. So hopefully that's a good rule of thumb at least that's good for everybody is just if you both have debt, like really you should, probably should not be filing separately for taxes. Yeah. And I and think this is a, a great way to kind of segue into like leverage some of the people that are in the advisor capacity to help you out with this. So like a CPA that does your taxes, they should be able to quickly and pretty easily tell you, hey, paying joint, it's this, paying separately with penalties is going to cost you this. Great. Then you're going to go, you know, look, talk to someone like Travis or myself and it's, you know, hey, you know, I'm working with a financial planner who actually knows what student debt is. And it's not just a Dave Ramsey pay off the, you know, debt avalanche or debt snowball kind of thing, right? Don't go to someone, if your advisor, that's what they're advising you, you're with the wrong person, sadly. But you're going to go to someone that's an advisor or someone like Travis that understands student debt and then goes, okay, my accountant told me this uh, for joint and this separate. How does this now relate to my student debt? And then you're going to you know, go through and factor out what it, that would cost you if you did things differently. And then you're going to make a much smarter decision. Don't just blindly assume because you read it somewhere online that it's best to go one way or another, or just blindly assume like, oh, I'm going private practice. No matter what, I need to refinance. Do a little bit more uh, legwork, a little more due diligence, because this really does mean potentially, you know, if your debt's three, three, four hundred thousand dollars like this is probably tens of thousands of dollars over the length of, of your loans that you're just quickly making a, a decision and hoping for the best. So don't be an ostrich and shove your head in the sand or just blindly pick, you know, what you're doing be diligent in what you're doing. So let's go to the next question from Sonny. When my wife accepted her position in the state of New York, part of her contract was a stipend from the federal government to pay back her student loans. Uh, She received uh, two large payments, uh, one her first year and one her second year. My question is, is that taxable income? Is she required to 
put that down as income or is that fall under a gift that is non-taxable? Sonny, that's a great question. Uh, Travis, I'm going to let you handle this one first. This is an interesting one. So what I would suggest, these stipend situations are always like specific to whatever program it was. So like, you know, I have to, I'd have to know more about like the, the actual program that they're, they're getting the stipend for. But what I did is I, I just like looked up some various programs that exist in New York State and I just pressed, uh, I went to the like the FAQ section of the loan award and then I pressed control F on my computer and I typed in tax and it took me to, uh, I think like random question number on this long, super long PDF, right? And it said, you know, is this award taxable income? And then it gave me a really clear answer that that said that, uh, you know, this particular one I was looking at was not. So, you know, a lot of these programs are very specific to the terms and conditions of the specific thing that you signed up for. So almost all these places has an FAQ PDF somewhere. And I would be shocked if you can't find the answer by just pressing control F and type in tax. So that's what I would suggest to find out. And you can always contact the organization that gave you the, the stipend ask them, you know, hey, am I reporting this on my taxes this year as income? Somebody should be able to answer that question for you. Yeah, good, good thought. And that was that was my first thought was is to just go right to the person that pays you the money and says, hey, thanks for the money. Is this taxable or not? Now, maybe this is the glass half full side of me when it comes to the federal government. Normally, I'm 99% at glass half, uh, half full. This is a glass half empty, I guess, when it comes to the government is that there's no free lunch. Like the government doesn't give anything voluntarily. So I would assume it's taxable and then be pleasantly surprised if it's not. But I would I would definitely call and find out, you know, or email or send an actual certified mail to the person who's doing it. If there's no other way of communicating with them just on who pays you and then send them messages and try to get the answers directly from them. I will link to the, the message that uh, Travis had found the PDF there in the show notes at financialresidency.com. So you can check that out. Maybe that'll help you, Sonny, but I hope that helps. And Travis, thank you so much for for being on the show. Uh, I really appreciate it. And uh, it's, it's always a pleasure talking with you. And if you could just let people know uh, a little bit uh, about where you're at and, and what you're doing. And Thanks for asking, Ryan. So people can always send me an email, travis at studentloanplanner.com. What my company does is we help people make a plan for their student debt so they can be confident that they're saving as much money as possible and they're not wasting tons of time on the phone with FedLoan or scouring the internet or reading blog posts, like basically just making sure that your family's got the best possible plan that's going to lead to debt freedom one day. And, you know, we charge like a flat fee for it and it's kind of a one-off thing that we just set up a consult call. We go through all the different questions that we collect and we make a plan for you. And we're the largest group in the country that works with student debt. And uh, we've helped people with so many different random things that we'll, we've probably seen what you're going through before, no matter how complex it is. So ev- even if you're just looking for just random, you know, you wanted to ask a random question, you know, just feel free to send me an email. Uh, I'd be happy to, to chat. Yeah. And I want to say one thing on this is, th- and this is not a paid advertisement at all. Travis is brilliant. If you can't tell through these shows, Travis is brilliant and what he's doing is is awesome work. And for those of you that sent me um, some emails asking for some student debt specific questions, 
I've always referred them to Travis and I do that not because it's paid, but because you're going to get really good service. So, you know, Travis, I appreciate you being on the show and guys and gals, if you have questions uh, relating to your student debt that you really do need help with, that you can't just use a uh, crowdsourced uh, through Google and Facebook and other, other people who have gone through it, then I highly recommend uh, working with Travis. So Travis, thank you so much again for being on the show. Thanks. Glad to be here. All right. Well, there was seven listener questions answered by Travis and I, and I really hope you guys enjoyed this type of curbside consult. I know I normally don't have a guest on while answering your guys and gals questions, but I thought it was really helpful to have Travis here. He is a student loan expert. He's incredibly knowledgeable and I think provided a lot of value to the whole community. Speaking of the community, we're nearing 500 members in the Facebook group, and I would love for more people to join and ask questions and be a part of the ever-growing community of physicians and physician families. So look us up on Financial Residency inside the Facebook group, or you can go to financialresidency.com to connect with the blog and the podcast there. Have a great rest of your week and talk to you guys soon. Thank you for listening to the Financial Residency Podcast. This episode has ended, but your financial residency continues online. Head over to financialresidency.com, where you'll find links to any resources mentioned in today's episode, along with other valuable tips and information that will help you regain your financial freedom. That's financialresidency.com.